Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Our focus today is going to be on the work that's been going on at Intermountain Healthcare System and to really bring us up to speed with what Intermountain has been doing and where it's going. We are so fortunate to have a very impressive leader on the show today, Dr. Mark Riesacher. Uh, Dr. Riesacher is uh, the Senior Vice President, Chief Physician Executive, uh, and President of the Intermountain Medical Group. He is responsible for advancing Intermountain's longstanding efforts to be a leader in care that is centered on patient safety, quality, extraordinary experience, uh, great access, and stewardship. In earlier roles, uh, Mark served as the Senior Medical Director for the Intermountain Medical Group, and he's also recently led their implementation of iCentra, which is their clinical and business information systems. He's served on the Intermountain Board of Trustees from 2005 through 2008, and is currently a member of the Select Health Board of Trustees and the Intermountain Medical Group Board. Uh, I have, on a more personal note, I have had the uh, wonderful opportunity to get to know Mark over the past few years. We've uh, met at many national meetings, particularly at the Group uh, Practice Improvement Network meetings, GPEN meetings. And I have to say that um, I've had a chance to hear him speak and I've had a chance to speak with him one-on-one and in group settings. And uh, it is just always, uh, he's always just incredibly thoughtful. The work that he and his colleagues are doing is just impressive. And um, what strikes me, uh, quite honestly, about uh, my experiences with Dr. Brisacher is um, how team-oriented he always is. And it's just always about what the team is doing at Intermountain. And uh, so it's just, uh, again, just such a great, great pleasure to have you, Mark, on the show today. How are you doing? Zev, I'm doing fine. Uh, maybe a little uh, uh, embarrassed a little bit by the very kind words you had, but uh, I, I'm doing fine. Uh, it's a real honor to be here and to have the conversation. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, so uh, before we jump into some of the questions I, I'm uh, looking forward to asking you, could, for the folks who are not uh, familiar with Intermountain, and uh, could, could you just give a high-level sketch of the organization, uh, how big it is, how many patients, that sort of thing? Sure. So uh, Intermountain Healthcare was uh, formed in 1975 as a not-for-profit uh, healthcare system. Uh, the you know today we have 22 hospitals that that uh, serves the, the the people of Southern Idaho and uh, of Utah and of the Intermountain West. Um, our we have our employed physician group, which is the Intermountain Medical Group of about 1,300 physicians across 50 different specialties. Um, and we have uh, pushing 400 advanced practice clinicians as well in the medical group. Um, our our facilities uh, on the hospital side vary from you know 350 bed, 400 bed tertiary um, campuses to 20 bed rural facilities serving you know the the broad population in the broad span of the state of Utah and southern Idaho. We also have a, a health plan 
which is Select Health. And uh, Select Health has just shy of 900,000 members now. And uh, again, serves the community with multiple different types of insurance, commercial, uh, Medicare Advantage, managed Medicaid, uh, and as well as some innovative products as well. That's significant. So what percentage of your patients, your larger patient base is in your select health, in your health plan? Do you, do you have those yeah. sort of rough? Yeah. So we, um, we, for, uh, we are in open medical staff system and also we work with multiple payers. Uh, select health makes up about 25% of our, our, um, commercial business. So, uh, and then, so we partner with many other payers as well. Mm-hmm. When I think about Intermountain and, and think think about have thought about it for years, been 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 an avid follower of the work that you and your colleagues have been doing. Uh, I, I place Intermountain in, in, in really the, the top echelon of provider groups across the country, and quite honestly across the globe. And um, again, been tracking you, been you know following your work, been emulating your work in, in, for years, and. Very, very similar, quite honestly, to another phenomenal organization called Geisinger. And I've had the opportunity to interview a couple of senior leaders from the Geisinger uh, uh, provider group as well. Now, the one thing you, you both share in common uh, is that you both have a, a health plan. that the, And, and it, it's not all of your patients, but it's a significant percentage of your patients which are in your health plan, which we know allows you to uh, the organization, to the larger organization, to benefit from the efficiencies that you um, you place into your healthcare system and your your provision of healthcare. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how big a role does having uh, being essentially what we call a payvider, a, a, a provider and a payer at the same time? How big a role do you think that plays in allowing you to be at that level of of, of excellence, if you will? I think it's actually been a, a very significant role. And again, thank you for your your kind words about Intermountain Healthcare are, so when the health plan was formed in 1983, uh, there, it was, it, the leaders at that time were really looking forward. And so, um, you know, from a historical perspective, this was the era of diagnostic related groups and, you know, kind of Medicare's efforts to, to manage you know, quality and affordability and sustainability. And, the, you know, the leaders of Intermountain Healthcare at that time thought that having a payer, uh, that was part of it, of the organization and aligned at an even higher level was going to be important for, for the strategies of the eighties and the nineties. I think today, the, when we think about our health plan, it, it's exactly in the way that you framed it. We, we see the opportunity as a payer provider to um, to reach out and and actually um, you know to take care of people and communities and populations and do so um, with a higher degree of coordination with a with uh, with engagement not only from the plan and from physicians and hospitals. But the really interesting work is when we're all we're able to engage with employers directly who have chosen Select Health. Um, in fact, we Select Health about three years ago created a new product called Select Health Share, in which um, the the employer mm-hmm. and 
their employees, they have certain things that they are responsible for doing. The hospitals and clinics and physicians, we have responsibilities within this model that we are, are accountable to do. And then Select Health as the payer has responsibilities and and uh, we, we've actually seen significant savings for employers in, in terms of their medical utilization trends being very, very low, you know, in, in, in the low single digits. And so, um, I think it's, I think it's been, uh, it's a really been an important part of our success in the past. And it's going to be really important for us going forward. That, Mark, that is so cool. So, it sounds like you've got this tripartite agreement. You've got the, uh, the, the providers that, uh, are doing things. You've got the payer, the select healthier payer that's doing, uh, something. And then you've got the employee or employers involved. So I'm really curious in terms of each of the roles that, um, these three stakeholders are playing in enhancing value and improving quality outcomes and, and experience and, and lowering uh, unnecessary costs of care. So what can you share? For instance, I'm very curious, what does the employer and their employees, what do they agree to, to participate in this value enhancing uh, situation? So they agree to um, uh, several really important things that we feel have actually driven most of the results that we're getting with this product. The first thing is that they do agree to use a high deductible health plan product and structure, and they agree to contribute to each employee's deductible to their H, their, their health savings account that they can use to, to cover the expenses of their deductible. The second thing that they agree to is to be involved with our health plans, uh, Live well program. So our, our, it's, you, know, you know, programs that many companies have, uh, but not all. And, and so they agree to, to use the teams and resources from Select Health to have, you know, workshops on healthy living, healthy eating, healthy activities, uh, that, that for their employees. And then I, I think, uh, of course, each employee does a health risk assessment and they agree to, have the uh, ongoing engagement for anyone who has a health concern or health risk identified in the engagement. Uh, I think the most important thing that happens in all of that space, because those are all things that many others have done and are doing. Um, but what, what the employers talk to us about is how it creates an additional community within their employees around being healthy and supporting each other and being healthy. So they will, you know, they will, they'll have walking meetings. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular group that, you know, where their, their manager said it was, it was great to actually think about how to do our work in a different way. And everyone was getting their 10,000 steps a day. They were encouraging each other. Everyone was encouraging each other to get their health screenings like colon cancer screening, breast cancer screening, um, screening for, uh, you know, prediabetes, screening for high blood pressure. Um, but I do really do think that the community that was created where they can support each other in both being healthy as well as support each other in, 
in managing their health conditions is what has made the biggest difference. And, and what about the your your payer, your select health? What what do you think they bring to the table in terms of uh, this mutual enhancement of value? So what they bring to the table is is a group of people who live here in Utah. So so you're not calling another state. You're not calling a call center that's you know thousands of miles away. Um, you get, you're calling someone who was just meeting with you a couple of weeks ago. Um, you're calling someone who you have a longstanding relationship with. Um, and so that's the first thing they bring. The second thing they bring is just this tremendous commitment to service. Yeah. So I, I love going over to Select Health. I love talking to their leadership teams, to my colleagues over there. Um, and to their frontline caregivers who, who are just so focused on, on their commitment to what they call superior service. And then the third thing that they bring that's really important is a longstanding commitment to healthy behaviors and to thinking about the community as a whole and thinking about the community over the long term. This is not you know, they don't take the approach of, you know, we'll, we'll buy this book of business this year and have them for a couple of years and then they'll probably switch over to another carrier. They take the approach of we want to be in this together for the long term. And so these these are the factors that I think create a distinctly different type of relationship. Yeah. And if it's OK with you, so, so let me let me uh, uh, drill down a little bit on this. So. So just to be clear, the, the, the select health plan is part of the larger Intermountain. So, and I'm asking this as a question, does it report up to the CEO? Do they all, do they just, uh, just like the provider groups obviously report up to the CEO of Intermountain? Does select health have that same relationship? They do. So the, so select health is a 501c4, um, just to get down to the technical weeds mm-hmm. uh, corporation. Mm-hmm. And they, they are a wholly owned subsidiary. They have an independent board of trustees, uh, for, for governance. And they have a, you know, they have their own CEO and executive leadership team. Mm-hmm. Um, the CEO, uh, great, great leader, great person, great colleague of mine. Uh, her name is Pat Richards. She's part of Intermountain's executive leadership team. And so she, she, she sits down with us every week, you know, and, you know, so you have our, our, our chief operating officer, our chief nursing, chief nursing executive. Uh, I'm there as a chief physician executive. The CEO of Select Health is there, as well as colleagues who lead uh, our community health work and uh, our chief financial officer and our chief consumer officer. And we so they're. They're right there at the table and, you know, we meet and we talk about strategies. We talk about how to better take care of people, how to make care safer, of higher quality, make it more affordable. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, it's, they're an integral part of the team. So, so I can, I can see a number of major advantages. And again, I think it sounds very, very similar to Geisinger's, uh, sub. One advantage, and again, I have to just say I'm, I'm envious of the situation because I think that it, I think it does enhance uh, the provision of health care and, and outcomes. But as you were just pointing out, one example is when the 
payer and a provider are sitting down together in that sort of integrated mutual relationship, uh, you know, where you're aligned, you can actually have, I mean, as we, you, you, as we all know, you, those are the conversations that really create change and create positive change when you have that kind of trust and that bond and you can really talk together and plan together about what is it that we can do to really enhance care and the value proposition. That's number one. Number two, I think that I would think that, you know, as as you improve healthcare and we know now that as you make improvements in healthcare, you can both improve quality and experience and lower costs and they often go hand in hand um, if you're doing it the right way, which I know you guys are. So you, you, as opposed to other providers where when you lower the cost of care by doing the right thing, you, 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 that money goes to someone else. It goes to the payer. But in your case, the money comes back to you. So you can invest it again into your organization and into, you know, capital and uh, new projects, et cetera. So you, you have that advantage as well. So just is that, is that make sense to you? Am I tracking? Yeah. So it, it does. Um, and the, um, I think that the the way that we in, in kind of pragmatic practical terms, it, when you know when you decrease utilization and, and, and or I would say decrease inappropriate utilization, then yes, that act that helps select health, right? Because they right. they have a lower medical expense trend, a lower per member per month. Um, but we do treat all of our patients, all of our families the same. So our work also, when we, if we do something that decreases the total cost per episode while raising safety and quality, you know, our state government, they benefit from that because right. the, the Medi- Medicaid program is now being run more efficiently. The federal government benefits because, because, you know, Medicare is by far our largest payer in our payer mix and and so they benefit as well as the other insurance companies, national insurance companies and some local insurance companies who we are contracted with, they benefit as well. And and so it is, you know, we we take a holistic view uh towards this. And of course we, you know, we also look for ways to to um uh, partner with all of those other payers. Um, and, and so that, that, that type, this type of model where the, of course the patients win first, right? It's always about safety and quality and their experience. Um, and then, you know, the payer benefits and then the health system and our physicians and nurses and the system benefits as well. Those are the types of relationships that we're looking for. So, you know, we welcomed the state moving to manage Medicaid. We, we were deep into Medicare Advantage. We have, we have an accountable care organization. Um, and so, uh, and, and we, and we're, we love talking to other payers about different innovations that we could do with them. Right. Yeah. Like I, and in fact, that was going to be my, my next question. So I'm glad you addressed that. So you clearly, most of your patients that you provide care for are, are, are outside of the health group. And so you're, the, the one advantage, uh, another advantage that as you were speaking came to mind to me was that having the payer, uh, a payer inside of your organization also um, allows for information for data, uh, you know, about the, you know, as you try to improve care, 
it's the claims data that uh, tells a lot, a lot, a large part of the story. And so we're actually able to to uh, see how effective uh, the changes are. So it, it, it just again, it just it, it seems like clearly you're very much in the same boat as as other providers for the vast majority of your patients um, in terms of having payers that are not uh, within your organization, but having that little nidus, um, you know, I, I, it just seems it is a a, at least as I look at organizations around the country that are uh, like Intermountain, really leading the charge in terms of value enhancement, um, it, it provides uh, a bit of an advantage. Yes. No, that's that's for sure. In fact, this is you know the longstanding work of our clinical programs. What is, is the foundational part of that is having both your the clinical data that that you create within your practice management systems within within your uh, clinical information systems. And then being able to look at, at the costs of care, either on an episode basis or across a population cohort, uh, using the select health data. And of course, always attending to the appropriate privacy around, uh, uh, personal health information. Um, yeah. and you know, we, it's, you know, so it's, it, it is a little bit more complex. It's not, it's, it's, right. it, you have to manage all that, but it's certainly, something you can do and uh and then when you have all the information you really you really get to a full picture of okay this is this is what we did here were our safety outcomes here were our quality outcomes this is what our patients said about it and here here was here were the cost outcomes yeah no i i I think that's well said you know uh mark you you and i i think we we are uh, we could definitely talk about this for quite some time but i want to step back and 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 you know, you, you just alluded to the clinical initiatives. And so from your perspective, you know, uh, and I've, I've got a list from, you know, just I've been keeping of the things I'd love to ask you about. What are some of the uh, you know top clinical initiatives, the major initiatives that you're working on, have been working on that have really been emblematic of the Intermountain brand in terms of just enhancing the value proposition, really improving quality and safety and experience. Um, I, I, I've heard you speak of a few of them over the past uh, two, three years, um, and, and I could, I could, you know, pick ones that I, I love to hear about. But I'm just curious, from your perspective, you know, could you, could you, you know, pick a couple to really, you know, give us a sense of of, of how Intermountain is, is moving the ball forward in terms of value? Yeah, sure. I think the so the probably the biggest one that um, you may have been hearing about is our, our clinical reorganization. And, you know, we, about a year ago, um, maybe over a little bit a year ago, our leadership team sat down and, um, you know, Dr. Mark Harrison had, you know, was, was our new chief executive officer and he initiated a conversation around how should we be organized for the future? And we immediately uh, started with, well, with, with the next question being, how do we care for people today? And how will we care for them in the future? Because that's, you know, that's, that's our common purpose. That's our mission, you know, helping people live the healthiest lives possible. And so when you ask that question, you, you get to an answer that, uh, and we got to an answer that we care for people in two ways. 
of course we care for them when they when they have an illness um, when there's an episode of care like a like a my like a heart attack or they get cancer or you fracture your your ankle skiing or mountain biking and we we know that we will care for people when they have these episodes of healthcare needs the other way that we care for people and have we've done so for some time um, but increasingly so across the country and certainly true here in out west is we now care for people within a population within a cohort of of populations and and you care for them over time so on the on the episodic care or specialty based care as we talk about it um, you think about things of you know on a per case basis per episode basis how safe were we in delivering that care what were the quality metrics related to that care what was the experience what you know what are we hearing from our patients in terms of patient reported outcomes and what they're saying about how we cared for them um, and then what is you know what was the cost for that episode of care and then when you think about the other way uh, where you take care of people over time and we we call that community-based care you now begin thinking about what is the what is this safe delivery of health care to an entire population over time? What are the quality measures of that population? How are they feeling about the care they're receiving? What's their access to care like? And then what is what is the cost for that care on a per member per month or per year basis? So we made the decision to move away from a re traditional regional organization of our healthcare delivery system and actually reorganize around our patients, around our families that trust us and honor us with, with the privilege of, of supporting them in their health. And so um, that is, this has been our major, major body of work over the past year to year and a half now. And, um, you know, I, you know, we, I, I would say the really in innovative space is on the community-based side where our medical group and our private practice physicians who are part of our medical staff and our clinically integrated network and home care and population health and services that are designed around uh, seniors and children with special health care needs that all is coming together into one function that we call community-based care. Um, we, we, we've hired a, a great team of people who have tr tremendous experience in this work, and, and they are now coming together and will be taking that forward. Wow, that's brilliant. It, it was really, is more than just reorganizing, you're really redesigning care. You're actually re kind of rebranding care, redesigning it, and reorganizing it. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, that, I, that, that's absolutely fair to say. You know, I, I, I really do give him a lot of credit for, you know, it, it kind of sounds like a simple question, but when you take a step back, it actually is a, a fairly, it can be a fairly provocative question for an organization to contemplate. And, uh, you know, of course, for us, we, we, for since the very beginning, it's all about how do we care for people in our community? I mean, the charge we received from the LDS Church when they donated the original 
to 16 hospitals was be a model health system. And, you know, to for us, that means always be learning, always be growing, always be thinking about how to to be better every day. And and Mark's question was was very much in line with that original charge. And uh, and so I, I, I would tell you that, um, of course, the, the transitional work is 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 it's hard work. Um, it's it, it takes a lot of. Uh, diligence and a lot of care for people and a lot of attention to working through uh, a design process. Uh, but coming out of it, I, I can tell you that the energy uh, out here at Intermountain is is really uh, rising quickly around what we're going to be able to achieve thinking about how we care for people. Yeah, and I definitely want to dive down into the uh, community-based part of, of what you, you know, what you're working on. I, but before we do that, just for a second, you know, I can imagine some people saying, sitting back and saying, well, you know, of course you, you're doing this, you know, hospitals always done acute care, episodic care, you know, procedure-based care, hospital-based care. And, and at the same time, you know, these large systems have also been affiliated with or owned practices that are based in the community. So it's kind of like, you know, I guess the question is, how how do you see the difference? How do you see the newness, the difference of uh, the demarcation of what you're doing now versus what you were doing before? And and I, I I hear what you're saying that that it really is different, and that everyone is appreciating that it's a different work. How would you how would you respond to to a question around? I don't I don't quite see the difference between what what we are doing and what you say you're doing in terms of these very very two different lines of um, uh, you know business, if you will, or health and delivery. Well, I, I I probably would start with the fact that I think a lot of organizations are thinking like about this, and I have a great deal of admiration for for many many of the healthcare systems across the country and. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader and I listen to, to everything I can and I read everything I can about what's going on out there because so many really great people and great organizations are thinking about this in a similar way. Um, I, in terms of what feels different, I, I would say, first of all, it's, we, we recognize that to to be the absolute best we can be for our patients, um, you need you need the the deepest expertise within each of the areas of care. So whether it's a cardiovascular medicine structural heart program that is that is uh, you know helping people avoid open heart open chest, you know, aortic valve replacement and, you know, using a minimally invasive uh, transcatheter uh, delivery of a valve replacement, or whether it's a group of family medicine docs getting together to think about how do they take care of their most complex patients who have, have Medicare and Medicaid, what's required here. Uh, and I think what our organization is is um, working towards is a, a deeper investment in leadership, leadership in nursing, leadership in 
operations and, and physician leadership within those specialties to uh, to really get to the, the deepest level of understanding on how do we make things better every day. Mm-hmm. At the same time, so you know, when I say that, you get a, a sense of, okay, I see a deep vertical. Uh, but at the same time, mm-hmm. we intentionally are bringing people together um, across the entire continuum of care in that same space. So that that, fam- that that group of family medicine leaders, you know, they're looking at things like how do we control high blood pressure so that we actually can can reduce the amount of heart disease in our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also thinking about how can we, for those who have congestive heart failure, what how can we partner with cardiology to make sure we're doing the absolute best we can in managing patients who do have cardiac conditions and and then our our surgeons and interventional cardiologists are thinking about how do we make that particular intervention safer better and more affordable and 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 i guess what this organizational structure does is it is that it very intentionally ask people to to connect at the intersections and team up you know, to, to come together in a non-hierarchical way uh, so that the nursing leader in cardiovascular medicine and the, you know, the senior medical director for family medicine, you know, they get together with their operations partners and it's it's non-hierarchical. It's just people getting together to, to work on an issue and and make make things better for people. And mm-hmm. and that really is. That's really the I think what the what the secret is here because um, mm-hmm. I can talk about an org structure and I can talk about the the strategies and the thinking around what you know how we got here, uh, but the real work happens mm-hmm. when people come together and team up and and actually actually make things better yeah. and and so we're, we're being very intentional about that. So let me ask you two questions off of that. The, the first is a comment question and. It, it, you know, as I hear you talk, uh, again, it sounds very, very similar to the path that Geisinger's taken in terms of excellence in the sort of episodic acute care uh, domain with, and then uh, whether it's, you know, orthopedic or, or cardiac or neurosurgical, uh, and then, um, uh, and then really profound excellence and attention in a, in a, in a separate from, uh, uh, yeah, separate from that acute care uh, work on, on the community and, and that community base and taking it just as seriously and, and, and you know, with resource and, and intention in that way. So, and I also hear a little bit, and as you mentioned before, I know you're incredibly well-read uh, and know what's going on around the country. It sounds a little bit like the Cleveland Clinic in, in its way of structuring things as well. Again, all three of you just, you know, uh, amazingly top-notch organizations, world-class, uh, seriously, in, in so many ways. And so it, it does sound very similar uh, to those two, particularly to, to, to Geisinger's uh, approach. And um, and so I, I, you know, I wonder if, you know, have you thought about that? Is Have those other two been influencers in terms of how you thought about it? Uh, I know you've, I'm sure you've influenced them. Well, I, I would say that, um well, the answer, of course, is yes. I think that, you know, I, I, we look at those organizations. We, 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 we look in, 
we look to Mayo and, and we speak with them, um, health partners, uh, in Minnesota, um, your organization, you know, the organization, uh, the Carolinas and, mm-hmm. and look, there's, we don't feel that we have the market cornered on good ideas. Um, in fact, we actually think it's an imperative for people to come together and share ideas and, and, um, and then take these ideas back and, and come up with solutions that are great for their communities and for their, for the patients they care for and for their organizations. Um, I do think that the, you know, I, the, the fact that both Geyser, Geisinger and us have had a health plan for a period of time, um, it, you know, is, as you have noted, uh, does, you know, we do, uh, share a lot of ideas back and forth or, or, uh, um, and so, uh, but certainly, you know, the, the, the approach from, from a specialty perspective and the deep expertise that you see from, from the Cleveland Clinic and others, uh, is, is notable as well. But I do, I, I would, uh, again, just come back to the fact that the organizational structure is really just a starting point. And what really matters is, is how you come together and do your work, uh, which really is independent of, of that structure. That's more about, that's much more about how, how we team up, the respect we show for each other, how much we appreciate the skill set that every profession, every professional brings to the table and, you know, including the, the voice of and the input from our patients in, in this work. So that, that is by far the key. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I, I want to, I'd love to explore that a little bit more with you because, because from my perspective, I, I've always marveled at the cultural aspect, the side of Intermountain. And for years, I've just noticed the culture there, the way you describe it. Um, and even your, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, your approach, which I think is very, very emblematic of Intermountain, sort of a sense of really profound curiosity and humility and, um, and sharing. And, and so it's just, uh, I, I do think there's something in the water, so to speak, and, and the way you guys work together, the way you hire, perhaps. I, I you know, I'm, I'm curious about that. Before we, we if we get into that, I, I do want to just raise another issue, which you, you mentioned before, which struck me when you, when you were responding to your CEO's question about how do we, how do we really redesign, reorganize, uh, for the future? And, and you came up with this, you know, the episodic versus the community-based care. You pointed out very explicitly that, and I think this is a real, to me, it seems like a real critical success factor, that what this requires is, is focusing on different results and different outcomes and different metrics. You, you, it seems to me you can't impose the, the metrics and the business model of episodic acute care on the community based and vice versa. You can't impose the, outcomes and results and metrics uh, and business model of community-based care onto the acute episodic. So does that ring true for you or do you have a different take on it? No, I no, that rings very true. And, and I'll add one thing to your observation, and that is they then need to come together in the middle and talk about utilization per thousand. So who are the right people to get a knee replacement at what point in time? With what clinical symptoms, with with what level of, of prehabilitation for surgery, 
uh, so that you get the best possible outcome. And so that really is is the important uh, part of the model. And and so again, you've got community based care thinking about what is what is my per member per month cost for musculoskeletal conditions across a population. You have specialty be, uh, specialty based care thinking about what are the safety quality um, and and costs uh, on an on a, on a total knee replacement episode, and then they have to come together and have the the, the conversation about hey what are what are our rates per thousand for total knee arthroplasty? When is the right time to replace a knee? Who are the best candidates? Who are who are the candidates that that definitely would benefit from a knee replacement, but they're their, you know, their condition, their physical condition makes them not ready to have the procedure. So we need to, we need to get them into, into physical therapy and we need to get them, you know, to help them stop smoking. We need to help them, uh, maybe lose 5% of their body weight before we, we, we uh, move forward. Those are the types of conversations that we think are, are critically important. When, when, when you contemplate how do we continually make care affordable for, for people. Yeah, I, that's very, very helpful. Thank you for, for really, um, making that explicit that, that it's, it's, there's, there is uh, almost kind of a third arm or focus that you're talking about, which is that ties the episodic and acute to the community based. And, and it is, I think, what you mentioned before, it's that, that cross continuum, if you will focus on the service line. So if you're taking care of a patient and that patient crosses, you know, between community care and episodic care, you know, that, that they have to be in that track. They, someone's got to be carrying them all the way through and back again. And, um, and so that requires a, a almost, uh, you know, a, a set of higher order metrics, if you will, and, and, um, and a higher order design that, that, it seems to me, though, and I, I know I'm biased because I, I work in population based population health and population based care, and I and I and I uh, you know that's my day job, and I work um, and I've been in primary care and ambulatory care for for decades, so so that's my that's my uh, my bias. But it seems to me that that in creating these two different lines, if you will, these two different reorganizations, that still the the over overlying um, organization really is is a population based one, is a community based one, and and that's the that's the overarching metric. It's how well are we taking care of this person, not just in that episode of care, which is clearly critically important, um, as all of us are acutely aware of. Um, but um, but really, the the overarching sense is the long haul, the long term, in terms of the experience and the outcomes, and 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 seeing the patient's life as, as you know, again, in that long view, as opposed to just the short view. So again, I may be biased on this and, and you may be biased on this, but do you, do you have a different sense of that or a different take or how would you, how would you edit what I just said? I, I think that I, I would probably edit it to say that the, we actually see tremendous opportunity to advance safety and quality and affordability on both sides. The, um, I, I, I am, first of all, I, again, and I agree, we, we both share a background in primary care and, and thinking about, about, uh, you know, uh, taking care of people over time. I'm, I'm a pediatrician, so, you know, child development and, and how are the fam- how's the family doing and meeting their, you know, their, 
social needs and, you know, keeping kids healthy. That, you know, that by far is, is where I lean. Uh, and at the same time, I, I have so much respect and admiration for the, the work that surgeons and intensivists and hospitalists and emergency department uh, and trauma teams, you know, the work that they do every day. And, um, you know, we, you know, we live in both worlds now. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, the, the conversation five, 10 years ago was, well, when are we going to get to value-based care? And, and the conversation today really is, well, how do we do both and how are we successful in both? And, um, and, and I think what, you know, from our perspective, we, we agree, we, we agree with how you framed it. And, you know, when you deliver safe, high quality care that's also affordable on an episodic basis, that helps the people who are working on, on, on taking care of populations. And the, the work in caring for populations in terms of maintaining and advancing health or regaining health, that benefits our specialty based care colleagues when someone has a motor vehicle accident and they have to be mm-hmm. hospitalized or when someone develops, you know, any other acute condition because they, they are a healthier patient. They are a, they, their, their abilities to withstand the, the, the physical and emotional stress of that episode is just that much better. And again, this deep investment in specialty specific leadership uh, on, on our uh, specialty episodic based side of the organization, there's such great opportunity there. The ideas that our surgeons and intensivists and our nurses have in these areas, you know, we, I mean, they, they almost come at us too, mm-hmm. too quickly. Like you can't do everything all at once. And, and, you know, I, I'm just a firm believer that when you get a group of committed, smart people in a room who are trying to solve a problem statement that starts with how do we make care safer and better, you're always going to get great ideas and great output from that happening. And I can tell you that's happening all across the organization today. Sure. Yeah. And let me just say, you know, I completely agree with, with the way you, you framed it. And I, um, I, I can't say enough good things about the hospital based folks, uh, that I work with and across the country. I mean, when you, when you need a surgeon or you need an intensive care unit or you need a hospital, um, and they do a phenomenal job, uh, you know, there's nothing more important in the world at that moment than, than, uh, that specialist and the teams that they have around them. So, and the systems that support them. So I completely agree. It is a both and. There's no question yeah. about it. And, 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 and the magic, I think that, that you are working towards, um, and, and have exhibited at Intermount is also, connecting those two worlds, which I think is really not something that's been done well before in the past. And so I, again, I really applaud that. But let me jump in. In fact, since we're talking about the hospital, I've got a bunch of questions. You know, boy, again, uh, you know, I'm looking at the time fly by and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I, I haven't gotten to like three quarters of the questions I wanted to ask you about. Um, so so virtual hospital, I, I have to say I don't have a good handle on what people mean when they say virtual hospital. So what does that mean uh, from, from your perspective and what you all are doing in doing that at Dramatic? So um, this is really exciting work. And, and again, we've got great people, smart people, physicians and operators, te- te- technologists who, who are nursing, who are thinking about this. Um, 
So when we think about a virtual hospital, we we feel that this is this actually is a strategy that um, can make a really big difference for rural healthcare. So again, we out in Utah, you know, we're one of these square states in the Intermountain West that most people fly over from coast to coast. And there's a lot of there's a lot of miles between between cities and and uh, big hospitals out in the West. And our so our virtual hospital thinking starts with how do we help people stay in the communities where they live and gather and and worship and play softball together and how do they stay close to their family how do they stay close to to their physicians and and caregivers that they know and trust and so that's that's our approach to things so we we've developed you know many many telehealth capabilities over the past handful of years. We of course have have things that a lot of people have like telecritical care. Um, and in addition to that, we, you know, it's not just adult critical care, but we also have teleneonatology. So we have it I could we've got this great story of a of a baby and mom who delivered around 34 weeks out in Ely, Nevada, which is out in the West Desert, and our neonatologist got uh, got uh, hooked up uh, through video, uh, actually helped review neonatal resuscitation principles with that hospital team out out there in Nevada, and they the baby was delivered. The baby was resuscitated beautifully by those by those clinicians, and. The neonatologist was able to support them through through that resuscitation and transition, and we did not have to transport that baby. Mm-hmm. And and so this benefits. I mean, the, the the benefits to the mom and the baby are obvious, right? And the but it also benefits that hospital and that community because um, whether it's that clinical scenario or maybe uh, you know a 52 year old who has sepsis with relatively stable vital signs um, and who is responding very quickly to interventions um, or whether it's a heart failure patient who does not, who, you know, we can save them a trip, you know, a, a, a six hour drive uh, to Salt Lake city. What, what you do in what you're doing for that hospital and that community is you're, you're increasing their case mix index. You're keeping revenue for that hospital uh, in, in that community. And so we think that, we think that we can use a, 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 a plethora of tele services, um, tele antimicrobial stewardship, tele crisis work, um, tele hospitalist work. Um, and we think that this is, is going to be a big thing for the, the rural facilities that, that, that are the backbone of healthcare uh, across America. Boy, I, I would love to to drill down in, in, in a bunch of those uh, teleservices you mentioned, the subspecialty teleservices. Do you how many are you do you have standing up and how many are you working on now? So we have in terms of specialties. Sure. Yeah. It depends on how you how you 
what you count as a specialty. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think we're approaching almost a hundred different unique services. There might be multiple services within a given specialty, uh, but it is, um, it's, it's really exciting work. And again, the stories that you hear and the letters that you get from people, it totally reinforces that, that, uh, um, this is the right strategy. And I, I can tell you, it takes a, it takes a really special physician and nursing clinician to do this work because, and, and our people are amazing at this. That you, they're able to step into a, a, an urgent or emergent clinical situation and their ability to connect with the physician and caregivers at that hospital in a way that makes them feel, hey, we're all on the same team here, that this is, it's, it's amazing to watch and, and our people are really good at that. Yeah, you know, you know what, astounding. Yeah, this is just a really wonderful to hear and, and, and really great work. What, what, what I'm, what I think about when I hear this, uh, this work that you're doing, and I know others across the country are doing, so we're doing very similar work as well. The, the thing that really, the, I guess the underlying great advantage here, the big shift is that in the past, um, cause I, I can imagine people saying, so what's the deal you're using tele and, and there's nothing new about it. Well, what's great about it and what's new about it is that in the past, You've had these superb, amazing specialists and, and, and providers and staff, and they're essentially, you know, you talk about value, they're locked up in a building, right? They're limited to a building. Maybe they could get into a car and, and drive a few miles, but that's, you know, tremendous. Imagine, you know, uh, an intensivist, neonatologist, uh, anyone, a nurse, a PA, spending hours and hours, you know, behind, uh, you know, a, a wheel driving, what a waste of their time and of their value proposition. And here you just eliminated all that waste and they're transported electronically to anywhere in your system. And essentially you've, uh, as, as actually Glenn Steele, the CEO, the ex CEO of, of, of Geisinger, I love his phrase. He calls it emancipating value, liberating value. And you, you, that to me is the underlying thing. You've taken these profoundly passionate, brilliant people who, who could do this life-saving work and you've liberated the value that's locked up inside of them. And I mean, that's the way I see it. And so I just, I just think it's a great story. Yeah. So the, the potential here is, is just unlimited. Geisinger's early work in delivering rheumatology to rural Pennsylvania. I think that was, that was a model that we paid attention to. And I actually was sitting down with, with our, we have a really great leader in neurosciences, uh, Dr. Robert Hesch, and he was going over his plan for improving access to neurology uh, for not only for Intermountain Healthcare, but even beyond that for for people all across the Intermountain West. And it is th this is this is doable, and it it um, it it greatly broadens. The amount of number of people you can care for, which brings us all the way back to that our earlier point around how, you know, achieving growth through using an asset like payer provider model is really is really a strategy that I think is is one that um, is is going to be a good one for healthcare. I know for for healthcare in the West. And I think healthcare uh, across the United States. Let, let me let me I uh, jump to another question here. Um, again, I've got so many burning questions to ask you. Um, what about the um, digital enablement? Uh, you know, this issue of access, and, and this may be more on the 
on the community side, it, it may it may be on the episodic side as well. But you know, how are you using the enabled enabling technologies to enhance a patient's uh, ability to access care? So this is a this is a key strategy for us, and um, you know, it, one of the members of our team is this really smart guy. His name's Kevin Mabbitt. He's our chief consumer officer. And he joined us from Disney. He, he, uh, his job at Disney was to, to digitize the parks. And, um, so he brings a, a perspective from outside of the healthcare industry that, um, is, is really informing our thinking around how can we become a consumer centered, digitally enabled healthcare system. And, you know, it starts with a digital front door that removes as much friction as possible. And, you, you know, we all have to understand in healthcare that our competitors in this space, you know, it's not, it's not our respective patient portals. Like I, you know, my, it's not that Intermountain's patient portal has to be better than the next portal. You know, our competitors are, are all the companies that are, are being so successful in a, a digital, experience. So think Amazon, think Lyft, think, uh, you know, any of your favorite apps that you use on the phone. This is what people are using in their lives today. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but we increasingly are hearing from our patients and families, why doesn't healthcare work the same way? And, you know, when you read, when I read about millennials and I'm raising, you know, my own particular cohort of millennials, um, they don't want to access healthcare the way that you and I have in the past. Um, you know, they, you know, they want online appointments. They want to understand what it's going to cost them. They want to, they want to, uh, have follow up that is, is digital. They, they actually, you know, they're a social bunch. You know, we, we, we kind of pick on them a little bit because they're, they're, uh, you know, they are attached to their technology, but, use that to connect with each other and and so we the sooner we get there from my perspective um, the better it'll be for patients and the better it'll be for our, our respective organizations uh, you know, so first of all I, I, I think that and, and the literature I've looked at I, I think that that millennial persona actually extends beyond just the millennials you see it I think in the baby boomers uh, they're same thing I mean who has the time who has the money? To, to do what patients did in the past to spend, you know, half a day getting to the doctor or hospital, um, waiting, 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 um, getting back. Um, it just, it's just not a viable model anymore uh, for anyone. For sure, the millennials and the younger generations, they're just not going to do that because it's just not the way to experience any other sector uh, of the market. Uh, so I completely agree with you. But I, I just want to emphasize again, punctuate. I, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. It, it's, it's mind blowing. So here you are, you're a healthcare system, a legacy healthcare system, hospital system. And you go out and you hire, um, the guy who was hired by Disney to, um, to digitalize, you know, digitalize them. And so you, you bring that sort of, completely outside external expertise um, into healthcare to, again, completely rebrand, redesign, re reorganize the healthcare system. I, I just, uh, I think it's amazing. This is, I, I have to give all credit again to Mark Harrison. You know, it, it, he's actually asked a lot of questions and, mm -hmm. um, and 
asking questions about how people experience care and what their expectations are very quickly led to the conclusion that, boy, we need to get the smartest, brightest people here who've done this before. And we not only do we have so much to learn from each other, but we have we can learn so much from other industries. Um, you know, the banking industry went through a, a, a challenging transformation to digital experiences, but uh, but they they've come out even better and stronger. And so healthcare, you know, we can't hide behind the complexity of healthcare. Uh, we can't, and and we and really you have to disrupt yourselves to to get to the next the next place to be. And, and we're, we're all in on that. Can, can you share with, with us uh, an example of a digital enablement uh, that, you know, that's been brought in this consumer experience zone? Yeah. So um, the, let me, let me think about what would be a good example here. So one has been, um, you know, we worked with a company out of San Francisco uh, called uh, Omada and, what, what they do is they connect people uh, to uh, who have diabetes and prediabetes. They connect people into social networks and they provide content and information to them. And they use, you know, they use nudge theory. And, and so they're, they're leveraging every aspect of behavioral psychology to help people make the very difficult changes in their daily routines to improve how they are, you know, improve their health, you know, to, to effectively manage prediabetes so that it does not progress to diabetes or to uh, change their lifestyle such that the management of their diabetes is simpler for them and, you know, and ideally uh, reduces the, the amount of diabetes medications that they have to take. So that, that's that's a, a, a narrow example of using a digital application to make care safer and better and improve the experience. Yeah, I definitely think that I definitely think we have to get to a point. I mean, the opportunity uh, to just think of even the the billing process for, for people. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much opportunity to take all that friction out and and uh, improve that experience. And of course, there's always the opportunity from a scheduling perspective. You know, how do you help people get the right care from the right team at the right time? Mm-hmm. And and so those are some of the areas that we're focused on in this work. Yeah, let me let me. I, I know our time is uh, we're getting close here, and I got I just want to ask a number of questions. So let me let me ask you this. Let me jump a little bit. Uh, the so much of care, the cost of care. Uh, happen in what we uh, call traditionally this post-acute care space. After you know, person's been in a hospital, they go either back home or they have to spend some time in a uh, uh, skilled nursing facility, nursing home, a rehab center, um, and then they they hopefully they get home. In fact, we know in Medicare, uh, literally at least a quarter of all the costs of Medicare are spent in that zone, in that post-acute care zone, um, and so. Uh, and, and one of the challenges, there are many, many challenges, many, many challenges. We could spend hours talking about it, but, you know, the challenges of, of how do you manage um, uh, the care and, and how do you how do you monitor the care in, in nursing homes? How do you, as we were talking before, how do you connect it to the rest of the care, both from the hospital and, and especially back 
that transition back into the home and and with home care and home health. And I know I know Intermountain has has a home health care division as well. So are there any um, what do you think about that space? Um, and, and, and again, in the context of your of your episodic and, and, and community based care, does, does this where does this space fit in and how are you thinking about it? What are you doing there? So we think we think about this space a lot, and um, the it, from my perspective, it it, it it fits in community-based care, but it, it certainly has transitional components to it. So it really is it's a it's something that lives across the horizontal in in the in the organization. And um, you know, we we did a project um, last year working with our orthopedic surgeons and. Uh, we're able to demonstrate to them that, you know, discharging their patients to home and having a, a physical therapy assistant actually around, you know, go to the home and support people there uh, resulted in better outcomes. So there were fewer readmissions. There were, I mean, all, all the, all the defects in care and complications, they all went down. The experience of care was elevated. People love being home. And, um, and it costs less on top of it. And so that, that's just, that's just one example that I know, I know us and many others across the country have been working on that one. But there's also a great opportunity, I would say, even, not even in just post acute care, but when you think about your, your most complex and highest risk patients, especially those on, in your ACO and, and who are uh, part of a Medicare Advantage plan. You know, they, they actually uh, would benefit and do benefit from care that's actually delivered in the home. So, yes, we, we're leveraging our home care teams, and we think there's an opportunity here to even go deeper with, um, with actually uh, increasing the number of home visits made by physicians. Um, I'm thinking about a, a, a project that I've heard about uh, that's taking place at the Brigham in Boston. And, you know, they're actually admitting, you know, rather than admitting patients from the ER, they, they now have a team that can admit patients back to home wow. and do hospital at home. And, uh, to me, it's, it's these types of innovations that are, are going to be necessary as our organizations take on more risk and pop health. Yeah. I, I love that concept, that phrase you just said, which is admit patients back to home. Yeah. Uh, and the whole hospital at home concept. What are, what are, Brilliant idea, and and I, I think it's brilliant because we all know home is the safest place to be um, it, 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 if it's done well and care is delivered well there, and it's the lowest cost. On top of that, and so um, you know, I would I would uh, I, I had vaguely heard of this uh, project, but if you know a contact there, I would love to uh, to hear more about that. Um, do you know who's do you know who's the administrator physician is running yeah. that project? Um, um... Yeah, I'm, I do we'll know, but I'm, but I'm, I'm vapor locking on it, so I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> no, no problem. But thank you for thank you for sharing that. You know, one one aspect of the way you think and uh, the way I understand Intermountain things, and I think again, this is part of your just amazing culture. There is um, you're, you're just generous and generative and collaborative culture. Is and, and I heard it in your story about Amada Health. The idea that you're, and even the story about bringing in the, the consumer digital uh, expert from Disney into Intermountain, 
you you ha- and, and tell me if I if, if if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me the way Intermountain thinks is as you, and you said it before, all the good ideas and all the expertise doesn't necessarily come from within your organization, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening both in the industry outside of Intermountain as well as outside of the industry. And I get the every time I, I read about it, I get the distinct sense that Intermountain is just phenomenally good at partnering and bringing in partners to create, uh, you know, to not only just create new ideas but to really execute on those ideas and to deploy them. And so, just you know, is, is that sense I have of Intermountain is that the way you see it, or is it different? We certainly think we certainly think that it is it's. It's an important strategy to to always be looking for how to make things better and more affordable. And and so, you know, our, our view of this is we first of all, we have we know what our core business is. And, you know, when it comes to our physicians, our nurses, our hospital administrators, our clinic leaders, there is there is just no, um, you know, that's our the. This is our core business, and we're gonna we're gonna be the best that we can be at that, and and we're gonna deliver great care to people. Um, there, when we look at other parts of the business, and you know if there's an opportunity to partner with somebody who can deliver the same service or better, uh, and who can do and who can do it uh, um, in a way that is innovative and um, can and, and ideally do it in a way that uh, makes care more affordable. Then we would absolutely, um, you know, talk talk about what you know what what would that look like. Um, I also think that the you know we're we're, we're always open to the ideas that other people have, uh, and um, and so certainly from a cultural perspective, absolutely uh, that's our orientation. The, the Healthcare is complex, and so it is. When when these things come together, that you know, that, it, it's hard work to do that. And so, um, you know, we 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 know that we can find people who are willing to roll up the sleeves and 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 come together, share this common mission around um, on making care better for people, and then go do something really special. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna jump again because we're we're running out of time. Um, uh, and I, you know, again, I, I would love to, sure. there's so much more to explore about, about what you all are doing there. I'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you again or, or one of your colleagues as well. What, why, uh, and as I said at the beginning of this, I've just been always a big admirer of yours and uh, all the people that, that are around you in the meetings we've met at and in the conversations we've had. <clears throat> why are you doing this? What, what's the, what's the motivation for, uh, Dr. Mark Riesacher, what, what's 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 behind this all? So, Zev, you're, you're asking you're, you're asking one of my favorite questions, and it's a question I ask a lot of people as you know when I'm trying to get to know them. And as I think about it, I actually go all the way back to a pretty young age. And look, my my dad was a mecha- he's he was a mechanic, and he he could fix anything. Um, of course, he could fix cars. But, you know, he'd fix the lawnmower, he'd fix, he'd fix the, the blender and, um, you know, he could just, he could just solve, solve problems. And, you know, he, 
he would work all day at the dealership repairing cars. I grew up in St. Louis, so, you know, I don't know if you've been to St. Louis in August, but it's, you know, or in January and it, you know, the weather is, is tough. And so he'd work all day and he'd come home and, and have dinner and then he would go out to our own garage in the backyard and he'd repair our friends and neighbors cars. And I'm sure, I don't know what he charged them, but I can tell you it wasn't very much. And, um, you know, one night he forgot to pick me up from basketball practice. And I, I think I was in the sixth or fifth, sixth grade. And, you know, I stood out there for almost an hour. And then, and then the guy whose car he was working on, he, he's the one who came and picked me up. And, uh, he could tell I was pretty upset about the fact that I got, I had to wait for 50 minutes or so after, after basketball practice. And, you know, he, he said to me, son, you, you got to understand you know, how hard your dad is working for you and what he does every day and how how much he helps others by doing this. And I think I, I, th- I really do think that that was the first time that I I began to understand that, you know, you, you're not defined by what you do individually. You're really defined by how you how you serve others. And and so I, I, I guess that for me, it goes all it, for me, it goes all the way back to there. And I, I of course have had, I, I was an EMT on, on, on a county ambulance service in college, you know, uh, to help pay for college. And there's all sorts of experiences there that actually finally led me to apply to medical school. But at the core, I think it was, you know, my mom and dad and, and what they taught me about being thoughtful and being in service to others. Wow. That's, thank you so, so much for sharing that story. Um, boy, uh, a lot to, to learn and gain from from that experience and hearing about that. Um, I, I, it actually explains so much of your character, at least to me. And I have a better understanding of why you are the way you are. Um, what? Um, let me ask you another question, which, and I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, what? And I ask this. I ask this next question of, of everyone that's on the show because I learned so much from it as well, which is. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? So it actually was my dad because I there was a a point I I remember this was like a Sunday afternoon and um, I was helping him clean things up at the shop. And uh, uh, I said I said something like, you know, dad, maybe. Maybe I should go to trade school and, you know learn to do what you do. And, um, and then I could take over the shop. And cause it, by this point in time, my dad had, had opened his own business and, you know, he, so my dad, uh, what it was, uh, not, you know, I wouldn't ca- call him athletic by any means, especially, um, you know, by the time he was in his late fifties, but, uh, boy, he turned around more quickly than I had ever seen him turn around. And, uh, you know, kind of like stopped on a dime and turned around and, you know, he, he just said, he just said, he said something like, you, you, you've got this life and you've got to, you got to do as much as you can and, and, and learn as much as you can so that you can help as many people as you can. And, and it wasn't exactly like that, Seth, but, but that's what I, but that's what I took away from, from it. And. Um, 
And then he informed me summarily that I was going to go to college and that was the end of the conversation. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, he was an amazing guy. Well, I, I, for one, and I'm sure so many other people are, are so, uh, glad and grateful that you took his advice and that you've taken the course you've taken. Um, uh, it's, um, again, it's, I'm, I'm just, uh, I, I'm, a little speechless at, at, at the stories you're sharing and the advice and, and it's just um, it's heartwarming and it's so so encouraging and so hopeful uh, that there are people like you and healthcare leaders like you and and again the great work you're doing um, I, I have to and, and 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 the great work that's happening at Intermountain I have to thank your dad just going back to your thinking about your your, your dad and your parents and uh, your dad must have been uh, is he still alive I'm I'm sorry I can. No, he, uh, he, he passed away relatively young. I think 64 esophageal cancer got him. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was sad. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry. But, but he's, he, he was, he was a great man. Well, I, I just can't imagine how proud he was of the, uh, of what you accomplished and are, and, you know, have accomplished in your life. So just again, thank you so, so much, Mark, for sharing that. Um, I know you. I know you've got to move on to your next piece of work. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, I, I hope we have a chance to talk again. This has been s- such a privilege to to hear from you and to have this chance to ask you these questions, which I've been you know wanting to ask you for quite some time. And um, and also, I just want to uh, what I do with every in every show um, uh, in every episode of this podcast is I, I am compelled to also thank the listeners out there who are either uh, directly. Uh, taking care of patients and providing care or those others who are supporting uh, the people who are providing care to patients because it is such critically important work as you pointed out in this talk with me and um, it's hard work and it's so important and uh, that that you continue this uh, this fight to do the best you can in, in healthcare delivery so again thank you for those of you who are in the healthcare business and and mark again can't say can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for for speaking to me and being so generous with your time and and the information and also with some of your personal stories as well so so thank you Seth, you're welcome and, and i thank you i've i've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation time has flown uh, and uh, I hope it does for people listening too. But I, I really appreciate the time. Well, I, let's just let's let's not say goodbye. Let's let's leave it until next time. Okay. Hey, sounds good. Okay, thanks.